My name is Helene Gale, and I am a proud trustee of CSIS. So on behalf of John Hamry and the CSIS staff, welcome to this forum today on four famines, unprecedented need, unfunded response. Uh, let me just say a few words to put it into context, and I'm sure most of you are here because you realize that we are facing an unprecedented um, need right now, and with these four famines that we'll be discussing, um, really hoping to provide information, but also hope that this will be an opportunity to call attention to the urgency of this situation, and hopefully all of us uh, can leave here even more committed to do what we can where we sit um, to make sure that this, these famines and the lives of people who uh, will be touched by them are not forgotten. Um, famine has already been declared in South Sudan, and it looks like it will be declared in Northeast Nigeria, Somalia, Somalia and Yemen later on this year. And as everybody knows, uh, once a famine is declared, that means that people are already dying. So in many ways, by, by the time we get to famine, we are already playing um, catch up in a major way. It looks like this set of famines in these four countries um, is likely to be the worst humanitarian disaster since World War II. And I think when we start thinking about it in those terms, it, it really puts in perspective what we're talking about. And yet, um, we don't hear about this. We're not hearing about this um, upcoming incredible humanitarian crisis. And we know that the response thus far is by no means equal to what the needs are. Um, you know, I think there's a complacency that is, that is set in, that is setting in. Um, there is such a uh, difficulty getting attention for these issues. And we also know that the need is incredibly t great at a time when we're looking at potential decreased resources in hum for humanitarian needs. Um, so I hope that these next few minutes, uh, this hour that we're going to spend together, will really provide the kind of information that allows us all to be knowledgeable, but also more than just knowledgeable, uh, hopefully will help us to think about the ways in which each of us can take this information and move it into action. So I'm pleased to be able to present our two speakers today who come with an incredible amount of knowledge. Um, I think combined somewhere near uh, 90 years of work in the field. Um, first, would like to introduce Director General Jose Graziano da Silva, who is the Director General of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, or as we all know it as FAO. He's a known agronomist, an academic, and has worked in food security, rural development, and agriculture for over, 30, uh, over three decades. He helped to design a very, very important program and headed this in, in Brazil, the Zero Hunger Program under President Lula, 
um, when he was the special minister for food security and the fight against hunger. He worked in Brazil um, helping on this, develop this program that really helped to lift millions out of hunger and extreme poverty by emphasizing social inclusion and linking policies that address macroeconomic, social, and protective challenges. He was elected to be Director General of FAO in 2011, uh, began serving in 2012, and then um, four years later was elected to his second four-year term. So we were really, really pleased and um, I think uh, very honored to have him speak today, somebody who has his type of passion, um, background, experience. He's at the right place at the right time. Let me start thanking uh, for these kindly words, Ms. Gailey. I hope that I will not disappoint. Uh, I'll make 10 points about the situation we are facing now, basically, not only in Africa, Africa and the Middle East. The first one is, well, we are talking about this uh, famine. The famine is uh, now only in some parts of South Sudan. Uh, Beasley and myself, we went there to see, and really people already dying, uh, but uh, uh, fortunately we have been able to provide some food aid, even in this area under conflict. I think you, you can have uh, some of these flyers there to see. I would like to call your attention that uh, this declaration of famine is based on an on-ground evaluation. Every semester, we go around in all the countries that are under conflict to evaluate the food security conditions of the population there. And we have a scale that we call IPC. I'll not go to the details. And that scale goes up to one to five. So when reach five, famine, we have now uh, more or less 13 countries that are in phase three, four, and five. And this brings about a uh, hundred and some more million people. So it's really the worst situation we have since the World War II. The second point is that basic, the conflict is the driven of this food insecurity situation in most of the countries. Uh, I'll talk more about when this combines with draw and impacts of climate change, then is the worst situation. But uh, now peace is the most important precondition for eradicating this hunger. And uh, is also uh, the precondition for our work. 
uh, WFP and FAO works together in a complementary way. We cannot work under conflict situation. And even when we do, it's a waste of time and money because what we do is undo the next day. So we are really lo losing money and time in conflict situations. The third point that I would like to say is even in, under conflict, local food production is fundamental to avoid famine. Even in Syria, for example, that you see every day in the TV, Syria, the farmers are still there, the pastoralists are still there, and they are still producing one-third of all the food Syrians need compared to what was produced before the war. In all countries, the situation is more or less the same. Most important part of the food still being produced locally, inside, by small farmers, pastoralists, that try to survive. That is their land. That is their job. So local food production remains vital in any circumstance, even uh, under conflict. My first point is that in this moment, exactly moment, what we really is missing is financial support. We could uh, do much more if we could got more funds. I'll not talk about numbers, but just to tell you, what FAO is asking is, let's say, more or less about 10% of the global pledge for those countries. And we got one-third to 40% only. So it's very little money that we are talking about to save so many lives. And unfortunately, we are not getting that money. And when we got it, it's not in time. There is a time for the money to come. Now, exactly now, is starting the raining season in Africa. If we lose this raining season, what means? If we don't get farmers the seed they need, we will have more problems next year. It will cost much more to feed that population because we will not, not have the local production available. And what happens now is that we just distributed seeds in South Sudan. Hmm? They ate it. They ate all the seed we gave. And we cannot blame for that. It's the way they find to survive. So if we don't come together with the relief and the complementary actions that we will allow them to plant or to have their herbs back as pastoralists. What a pastoralist does if they lost their herbs? It's the first thing that is killed in a conflict are the herbs, especially small ruminants, sheep and goats. What they do? They will remain in the camps for life. So we need to restocking them to them to become pastoralists again. This is what, where we are using the uh, money. My f uh, five points that 
In those countries, especially in Africa, but also Yemen, uh, eight of, out of 10 people affected by conflict live in rural areas and in some sense are related to or livestock or fisheries or agriculture or something related forestry, something related to these areas that we work with. So it's important to not only to save lives, it's important also to complement saving lives with preserving the livelihood preserving the environment where those people live. Because if not, they will flee. They will come out, they will cross the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean, they will jump into Italy. Is that what they are doing? So we'll not stop them coming if we don't provide their livelihoods back. And that's what we are trying to do. My sixth point uh, is that uh, uh, the support for the livelihood is not important uh, as a humanitarian response. It's also very cost effective. We are, for example, we, FAO, we do vaccination of the herbs. In situation of conflicts and also draw, uh, the animals usually get much more sick than usual because they are, uh, let's say, not eating enough, not being, uh, having the, the, what they need. So prevent uh, disease that is spread around the conflict areas is a very important task. We have, for example, been able to vaccinate about uh, six million uh, cows, goats, and sheep in South Sudan even with the conflict. If we don't do that, those herbs will die and the situation will get worse. So this is also part of the uh, emergency assistance and is costly. One shot costs uh, half, uh, 40 cents. Uh, one gold costs minimum in that circumstance about 10 sometimes more $20. So it's cheap to prevent than to have emergency and curative action. Uh, my point number eight, uh, the example of Somalia. In Somalia, we had uh, uh, famine in 2011, 2012. And we uh, came late to act in Somalia. We only started the vaccination, for example, the preservation of the livelihoods and the cash transfer uh, in 2000, January 2012, in a famine that started around August 2011. 150,000 people died because we came late. This is the situation that is up to repeat in the countries that we are talking about. Even the famine is only in South Sudan, in all other countries that are, we mentioned, we are at the break of famine. It's level four or near the five that will be gained. Uh, my 
point number nine, if I'm not wrong, uh, we uh, need uh, peace, no doubt. But we cannot wait for the peace to act. This is also important. Uh, we had opportunity in the visit to South Sudan uh, to meet the vice president, and we told him that uh, we need uh, peace to start. But he turned to us and said, please don't leave us now. We don't have anyone else except you, the international organization, to support our people. And peace will not be stopped easily. So we need to keep supporting the people, even in those dramatic circumstances. Let me close saying that uh, the, we all wanted to build more resilience. We all wanted to prepare those population affected to resist better, even to the conflict or to the draw. This equation, conflict plus draw, is what brings famine in most of the countries now. When they get together, it's really uh, quite near impossible to stop it. And we cannot stop a draw, but we can stop a draw to turn into famine. That's very important. We know how to do it. We have the action, the means, how to stop a draw to turn into famine, how to stop a conflict to turn into famine. That's what we need to act now, and for that we need funds. The, what we have now is not enough to provide the minimum to those populations in that countries that we are talking about. So, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we're now going to hear from our second speaker, and then after the second speaker um, has finished, the speakers will come back and um, we'll have a lively question and answer and really be able to dig into some of these issues um, a bit more. But let me introduce um, our, our next speaker, um, who is the executive director of the UN Family uh, uh, UN World Food Program, WFP, um, Executive Director David Beasley, uh, Governor, former Governor Beasley, has been in public service and business career that spans uh, over four decades. He's worked across political, religious, and ethnic lines to champion economic development, humanitarian assistance, education, and intercultural and interfaith cooperation for the most vulnerable people across the globe. For the past 10 years, Mr. Beasley has worked with influential leaders, on the ground, program managers in more than 100, in more than 100 countries on projects to foster peace, reconciliation, and economic 
progress. He's also um, taught at the Kennedy School and has been widely sought after um, for his expertise, particularly in the area of peace negotiation and um, working across um, different groups. So it's my pleasure to welcome him to the stage, and then afterwards we will have uh, everybody join and have the, the discussion. Helene, thank you very much, and uh, it's always good to share a program with my new and good friend, Graziano. He and I have been having the greatest time together addressing what is unquestionably one of the most uh, difficult times in world history, particularly in the last hundred years, as we're facing literally the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. And uh, what's not fake news is the fact that we have children that are going to be dying every single day with the famines that we are facing. This is a plight upon humanity. It's totally avoidable, but because of man-made conflict, we have this desperate situation before us. We're looking at 600,000 children, literally over the next few months, dying. Just in these four famine countries, 1.45 between 1.4 and 1.5 million children over the next eight months are at risk of death right now. Absolutely preventable. Between FAO and the World Food Program, we have the logistical experience and expertise to completely prevent famine in each of these locations, except for the fact that we have man-made conflict driving this into the dirt. Out of our 13 most revenue-oriented countries, 10 of them are man-made conflicts. But when you compound it, particularly with Yemen, South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria, Somalia, then, of course, you can add Syria, where we're feeding about 4 million children today, 2 million some-odd people in Somalia, 2 million some-odd people in South Sudan. Graziana and I were just in South Sudan together, witnessing amazing workforce of our humanitarian aid workers who are willing to put their lives on the, ground, on the life on the line literally every day. And as we met with the leadership, explaining to them, expressing to them, it's unconscionable, it's disgraceful what is happening in this country. The newest nation on the face of the planet fighting each other as innocent children and families suffer and die as a result of nothing but pure, pure man-made conflict. It's inexcusable. It's unacceptable. Notwithstanding these man-made conflicts, with $300 trillion worth of fluid wealth today, we should be able to end world hunger without any question or doubt about it by 2030. The Sustainable Development Goal number two. It's an achievable objective. But with man-made conflict, it's not. Compound man-made conflict with drought, and you have catastrophe in the reality of the present moment. Graciana and I were on the ground witnessing how the World Food Program and FAO were working together to minimize inefficiency and maximize effectiveness. It was quite a good time together. And to see the innovation and creativity taking place between the cooperative spirit, we were watching one of the airlifts, you know, if we can get access into areas by trucks, the cost is somewhere between seven times less to ten times less, depending upon how you're doing an airdrop versus an airlift like we were doing 
airdrops in a particular area where ISIS controls in southeast Syria with a town of about 90,000 people, and you can't get food into them by truck or any other means. So we do an airdrop. But the town's very small, and the airdrop location where we drop the food is a little bit larger than a football field. If you miss the drop, ISIS gets it. We had a report the other day that showed that our 99 point something percent success rate of dropping, not from 1,000 foot, because why? Because we have to go to 20,000 feet because ISIS and other terrorist groups can shoot us out of the air. So they're dropping from 20,000 feet. And our success rate was 4,400, give or take, 4,600. Anyway, you get the point. And, the, and if you want to get an idea of what that means, that drop rate of 4,600 and some odd successful drops, it'd be like you standing in front of the dot, dartboard at the, prox, at the right length and throwing 4,600 bullseye back to back to back. That's the expertise and the commitment of FAO and the World Food Program. In South Sudan alone, by new technique of de- redesigning a parachute to drop items like cooking oil out in the middle of Timbuktu, Rumbek. That one innovative change of a parachute have saved us $45 million just in the last two and a half years. $45 million. Now, if you're feeding a child for 50 cents a day, 45 million times 50 cents is 90 million more days of food for a child divided by the number of children. So you see why it's amazing to see the expertise and the experience that's literally on the ground. When I walked into the World Food Program, I mean, many of you probably have heard, I had, when I got the original phone call, I was like, I don't know if I want to go into the United Nations. You know, there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, and having been a governor, we like to get things done, boom, boom, boom. And then when I started hearing about the expertise and the experience coupled with the crisis that we were facing with the four famines and a possibility of a major cutback from the United States, my mother always taught me when I was a little boy growing up, wherever the battle is is where you need to be, son. That's where you need to go. And so here I am speaking. I mean, I can imagine, you can imagine Walking in this new relationship, this new job, with four famines, crisis all over the world, possibility of substantial fundings being cut, and what if the World Food Program needed massive overhauling? There's just no way to handle it all. The good news is the World Food Program is in great shape. The experience, the expertise is second to none. And the cooperative spirit with FAO, Graziano and I have been meeting strategically and literally almost every week discussing how we can cooperate more effectively, utilizing the, the dollars that are given to us to help end world hunger. And so there's a lot more that can be said, and we'll answer any, any questions up here. But it is, it is an exciting time. It's a heartbreaking time as well. With every heartbreak, you see somebody putting their life on the line. Uh, it happens with our teams out there in the field every, every month. We're losing someone. 
I think it was in Syria alone where some of our contractors are losing between one and two people per month uh, out there, laying their lives on the line, helping people who need help. Uh, the decision we don't like to have to make is because when we have limited funds, that means we have to make hard decisions. Which country, which children don't receive the food? Which means they die. And with the available wealth we have today, it's inexcusable. And as Graziano said, if we can end the conflicts, the man-made conflicts, we can address every single need out there. We can avert famine without any question whatsoever. And so we'll be answering any questions you may have. It's great to be here. I have to apologize. I'm only, this is my, uh, I took the new position on April 5th. It's June 5th. I literally have been drinking out the fire hydrant uh, in terms of knowledge and expertise out there. And I'll say this, with uh, President Trump talking about putting America first, if you want to put America first in international and national security interests, You'll fund the World Food Program and humanitarian organizations like this because for every dollar we spend here, it saves us multiple dollars in military operations. Without a doubt. It is the most effective program out there, dollar for dollar, for fighting extremism. No doubt in my mind. I've seen it firsthand. Graciana and I have been out there watching it firsthand. Because if a mom and dad can't feed their children after a week or two, I guarantee you there's not a single person in this room. If you couldn't feed your little girl and after about three weeks, and the only available place you can feed your little girl is turned to the only available source out there, you go do it. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it left and right. People don't leave their country because they just want to leave. We've seen in Syria, for example, and I'm getting off before I'm about ready to quit, but just in Syria alone, this is typical. Before a family will leave their country, they will move three times inside their country before they'll leave. In Germany, we're spending, what, 50 euros a day for humanitarian need for every refugee in Germany. You know how much it costs us to feed a Syrian IDP internally? Just the food alone, just 50 cents. 50 cents, 50 euros. And the modality that we have, the flexibility that we have in each of these countries to do what we need to do, as long as we've got that flexibility to determine whether it's commodities or, or e-cards or whatever the technology allows us to do to embrace that economy, strengthen that economy, whether it's Lebanon or wherever it might be, these are the flexibility, the options that we need to be able to get our job done so that we can sustain economies. With Graciana, with the World Food Program, the FAO working together with with the success that we have in this room from the experience, I don't think there's anything we can't do. I really don't. I'm the new kid on the block. I'm learning from all of you. So forgive me for my lack of knowledge, but another year or so I hope to be talking like all of you, but not using that UN lingo. I keep telling my staff, don't use that UN lingo. I don't know what they're talking about. The IDPs, the EIAs. I'm like, what are y'all talking about? Y'all speak a whole different vernacular in the UN system. But it's, it's great to be here with people who heart are for feeding children and people all over the world. So, Helene, thank you, and I'm going to sit down.
David, you may be new to the position and a little short on knowledge, but you are big on passion. And that is wonderful to see someone in your position. I'm Kimberly Flowers. I'm the Director of Food Security here at CSIS, and I'm so grateful to Helene Gale for joining us, and particularly to Graziana and David traveling from Rome to come here to talk with, uh, I'm sure, many counterparts in the, the Washington community. I want to start with a question for both of you, especially, David, you made the point very clear that this is man-made. You both made the point that conflict plays in this. So my question is, even if all four of the famines are unique and they're complex emergencies, one of those common threads is the political instability that they face. So I'll start with you, Graziana, because you've been in this position for longer, but as a senior UN official, how involved do you get in the political side of a humanitarian crisis? Well, uh, we don't get involved in the political arena. Uh, the UN system as a whole, uh, we do respect the country's national decision. Mm. Uh, so what we do uh, is to provide them a lot of incentives to build peace, but the peace will only be achieved if they get together. Uh, this case of uh, South Sudan, for example, is a civil war, uh, and it's a typical uh, uh, fight between the majority, that is the Dinka uh, ethnic group, uh, with the other groups. And the other groups are also fighting among themselves. So uh, this is a situation where if someone from outside try to enter this fight, this will not help. Uh, we have cases like Syria, for example, that we can see this very clear. We have other examples, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, they need to get find a solution, and the solution is basically a political solution. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add anything to that? Well, what, uh, what we, as Graziana and I were meeting with the leadership in South Sudan, explaining to them uh, that they're limited funds, and that if, if they have any hope for the future of their nation, they need to understand that we don't have access to unlimited funds. And, in fact, as we sat down with the leadership and said very clearly that there is a substantial chance that given the conflicts that continue to go worse and worse and worse and worse, and like as just a few weeks ago we were meeting with some of our leadership here in the U.S., and they said, well, you've got pretty much the same amount of funds you did last year. I said, well, to a certain degree that may be true, but the situation is 28 million more people or facing starvation than they were a year ago. So we're no longer changing four tires on a car. We got an 18 wheeler's got all flat tires. And I said, it's much more difficult nowadays. And so as we were explaining to the South Sudanese leadership is that we're gonna to have to make some hard decisions. And if there's a cutback in funds, in addition to the increased need for funds, our recommendation was to the leadership there that you need to end this conflict. You need to take whatever measures, measures are necessary to end this war and conflict. And so we have, in my opinion, we have to begin making uh, uh, contingency plans in these countries if we have a shortfall of funds. And we now, we know just as we're speaking now, 
just in South Sudan alone, I think we're at 30% funding. And the four famine countries, we're at 26%, give or take, 25 to 26% funding. And I'm not sure you know, where the money's coming from. We're doing everything we can. We're flying from the United States to Canada, to UK, to Germany, to Switzerland, to all the major donor states, making the argument, making the case. And here's, here's one of the greatest dilemmas that we've been facing, because traditionally the United States, you know, speaking as to my home country, very generous people, the American people are as generous a people as any people in the world. But when you look at the news in the last six months, in France it's been Le Pen, Le Pen, Le Pen. In UK it's been Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. Well, you know what it's been in the US, Trump, Trump, Trump. Well, the problem with that is, because of the obsession of the media of not doing what they normally do, provide balanced information on a variety of sectors and issues, the people in America aren't, I think, and a lot of these other donor uh, wealthy countries are not hearing the normal messaging that you would hear, and therefore they respond. And so the message is, is difficult. It's, it's kind of... It's kind of dampened by all this clutter that's out there. And it creates a, a problem. You, I mean, all of you out here know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's a problem. And so we're, Graziana and I are going to these famine countries. I mean, we were just in Somalia the other day. I mean, holy mackerel. Uh, I mean, it, it's just terrible. And we're doing everything we can do with limited resources in these very difficult areas where a drought is on top of the conflict. Somalia's less conflict, even though you got Al-Shabaab and the issues out there, and you got some tribal issues, but it's more drought-oriented in Somalia than it would be, of course, in South Sudan, Yemen, and Northeast Nigeria, and of course, Syria. But uh, then you get into the issues of access, and we, that's a whole other issue of discussion, but uh, it's my opinion that we need to speak out and as we're saying to the leaders around the world, if you're not going to fund the humanitarian crisis, then you have a moral obligation to do everything you can to pressure the actors in these conflicts to end the wars. Period. Yemen, it's my opinion that the Saudis ought to be funding the humanitarian crisis there. South Sudan, the U.S. ought to be stepping up, you know, as much as possible. For obvious reasons. But I'm waiting for the Secretary General to call me, probably, and say, you know, David, I really appreciate what you're saying, but you really need to low-key it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, Kelly. So, I think what I want to dig into a little bit deeper is around the donors and around funding, because clearly there's a huge, enormous gap. You've both been working very hard, traveling around, you know, trying to have other donors step up. Um, we know of the potential shortcuts with our administration, which I'm sure you'll be talking to many people on the Hill about why you're here in D.C. But my question is, talk to us more about the system of donors and whether you feel like it could be better organized or better balanced. What makes a fair share? I mean, is 30% of the appeal from one donor, is that enough? Like, how do we, how do we better balance that and how do we try to better balance out all of the donors? Well, uh, what we see is that uh, uh, at least the two main reasons for, for this. One is that in, uh, I would say that in some sense donors are exhausted or tired 
to fund a situation where they don't see results. Uh, and that's true. And, uh, but it's not only that. Donors are also moving for other issues. Now, for example, migration in Europe became the central issue for uh, most of uh, European donors. So most part of their money is uh, changed to support of internal migration. So this is the, the two reasons. But uh, I would say that uh, if we don't, uh, let's say, get together and have a more comprehensive view of this crisis, it's not only that we will not stop it. It will affect our countries. They, those people will not remain there. And that is the point. If you want to them to get back to their work, to their life, we need to provide them that opportunity mm-hmm. on the political arena, but also on a humanitarian arena. Don't ask us to do the political part. Uh, we need to ask the politicals to do it. Great. Any other thoughts on fair share or mm-hmm. donor system? Well, you can debate that in a lot of different ways, Kimberly, but what uh, is the United States obviously puts up, and particularly as to the World Food Program, uh, it varies, but 30 to 40 percent of the funding. Uh, Germany's second, and then you get into the EU funding, the UK, Canada, Japan, uh, sort of the big, you know, big donors, and, and and then you get small countries like Norway, and you know a lot of my uh, Canada friends will say they'll say, well, David, you know if if it's on a per capita basis. You guys in the U.S. don't put up enough, uh. you know, and uh, and so we have a lot of going back and forth. I mean, the U.S. does a, an amazing uh, job in this regard. There is a donor fatigue issue out there, but it's in spite of the problems, you know, because I do believe many of you who've been involved in this hunger issue for a lot longer uh, than I have, you know, anybody over two months is longer than I have in terms of day to day, but but. You, you look at how much progress that was being made. You know, FAO and WFP and all of you working together and, and the hunger was going down, 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 and all of a sudden, boom, you know, you got these man-made conflicts all over the place and now it's spiking. And I mean, we're looking at, as I've said with Somalia, 2010, 11, 12, with 260,000 people died, uh, half of them died before the famine was declared. And what we're facing right now made that look like a picnic. And that's what I'm saying is what's not fake news is when these pictures start rolling out in the next few months with children dying. And the donors, you know, they're moved by, by pictures. Mm. Particularly when they're not getting the news that they normally get because of the distraction. I mean, I, and I have confidence, I really do. I believe that the United States government from the White House to the Capitol will be there when it counts as to the funding of the issues that we're talking about. I really have little doubt about that. I, I know you may have seen the, the budget that came out last week, but I, I, I have all confidence for it's all said and done. The United States from Pennsylvania Avenue from one end to the other will be there when it counts before it's all said and done. I just I have that much faith in, in our system and our leadership 
that once they get the facts. And I believe other countries will too. And I'm hopeful, I think Graciana and I both are traveling to other countries to get countries that has, have historically not stepped up. You know, China can do a lot more. Russia can do a lot more. France can do a lot more. I mean, I had a meeting the other day with, uh, probably shouldn't say this here, but. I'll uh, definitely say it though. <laughs> but we, I think we buy a product from France called Plumpy or something like that. You Plumpy know, nut. Plumpy. Well, you know, we spend, we hold, don't hold me to the penny, but somewhere around $90 million is what the WFP pays to that company. Well, we get $30 million from France per year on the WFP. Well, you know, that doesn't sit right with me. A country like France, I want fair trade. So either give me the stuff, $90 million worth, or anyway, you get the point. We got some leverage here, and I'm planning on using every bit of leverage we can to raise every dollar we can for every hungry child out there in the world. And that's just the way it's going to be. And I think that's what we ought to do, particularly with countries who've got money. And France does a lot in a lot of ways, but, but I'm not going to let little things like that slide by. So I think that other donor countries are stepping up. Germany, I mean, Germany's gone from 200 and some odd million to 800, mm. give or take million, just in the World Food Program side. And... Uh, you know, when you look at the numbers, 50 euros a day versus 50 cents a day, you know, and just last uh, week before last, Graziano and I had a member of the Bundestag travel with us to South Sudan, and he was just blown away. So one of the things that we're doing is that we're inviting members of the parliaments from the various high donor countries to inspire them and encourage them. And he's going back and he's getting his entire committee who funds these programs to come to Rome and we're going to have joint meetings together to showcase the efficiency and the effectiveness of these programs. So we're thinking outside the box. What else can we do? We've got a lot of other ideas. But uh, anyway, back to you, Kimberly. You know, one thing I talk about a lot in my role here is the connections between food insecurity and political instability. And we look at a lot how food is used uh, as a weapon of war. So I'm curious, when you've been in South Sudan or Somalia, are there any examples or things that you've seen, including in the past, of how food is being used as a weapon? And would you say that any of these famines are a form of genocide or just another war tactic? Well, uh, in all the human history, uh, uh, food has been used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. Always. It's not new. Right. Uh, and uh, what uh, they do for their survival, and we could see where the militias were acting, they just took uh, whatever they can. Mm. So sometimes are ghost ships, animals, sometimes are cereal, food, uh, everything. Even human beings can happen to use to uh, exchange for money or weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the war. Uh, I'm not a specialist in war. <laughs> what I can say is that uh, we found a direct correlation between conflict and war. When we have, uh, sorry, between food security and uh, war. 
when we have food insecurity growing, the conflicts grow. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a direct relation between conflict and food insecurity. And uh, uh, even a study made by WFP in Syria show this uh, uh, with uh, uh, numbers and facts showing that 1% uh, increase on conflicts is 2% increase in food insecurity scale. So this is a direct correlation. We will not have a lasting peace in a food insecurity country. This is the trade-off. Absolutely. Anything else uh, related to that or also just your time in South Sudan, some of the things that you saw or Somalia? Well, in, in all these countries, as Graziana was saying, the, the study that we just came out with at the World Food Program for every 1% increase in hunger, you know, like in, Sy in Syria, you have an increase in hunger, there's, there's a double that uh, increase in migration. It's directly correlated. And actually, uh, the conflict it compounds it, but it doesn't drive the migration as much as the hunger does. Because families will hunker down in their home and their neighborhood if they're safe. But if they can't get food, they will leave. And uh, they'll do whatever it takes. And, and of course, getting food in places like Syria, uh, if you don't have conflict, it's a lot easier than getting food in places like South Sudan where you're out in the middle of, I mean, nowhere. You'll be in a, in a helicopter for just literally hours. And uh, I, I don't know how in the world people survive. It is just amazing. And we, we have seen it. Uh, rebel forces in, in South Sudan will lay down their arms if they can get food for their families. It, we see it every day. I mean, we've got, I mean, all the countries that we're in, because we've got monitors where we're, you know, we're feeding 4 million people a day in Syria. So we've got monitors all throughout the country, people. And so... We can tell you who's moving where, at what time of the day. We can tell you when ISIS is on the move. Because our people are out there on the ground, literally. And where they can't be, it, it compounds the problems because we, we're neutral. And as Graziano will tell you, we, we want to make sure when we put food on the ground, it's getting to the right hands, innocent non-combatants, because we don't want to take sides. We don't want to feed either side. You know, we want to feed innocent families and children. That, that's what we do best. But anyway, Kim. Let's, let's turn to the audience. I'm sure many of you have questions and comments. Please raise your hand. We'll have a microphone come around to you. Um, let's have already. We'll do it right here in the very front. Our microphone's coming. No problem. Um, please, we'll do three at a time. Please state your name and your organization and um, your question. You can direct it either to one or both. Yeah. The right here. As unfamiliar as I am to a microphone, thank you very much. I'm uh, Rear Admiral Gary Hall in the National Security Council, Special Assistant to the President. And what I wanted to make clear is, uh, first of all, David, as you finished up your uh, comments, I wanted to step up on the podium and accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> I wasn't sure what we were talking about here. But you made one point that got a, an applause point, and that was if the U.S., and the answer is the U.S. is. But you, what you pointed out was because all the news is Trump, 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 and uh, Britex, 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 
I think everybody missed that after the president met with the Pope, um, there was a press release <coughs> announcing that fully funding the four famines. And right now, as I look at my watch, I am here, but my assistants in OMB is briefing uh, the deputy assistant to the president on the four uh, famines. And we know that um, the fact that we have not advertised this has kept other donors stepping back. But I wanted everybody here in the room to know that the president is committed to the four famines, as is all his advisors, and the money it will be there. Thank you. No, no question. Hey, and let me just say, Gary and I have had many meetings back to back and discussing these things, but I try to protect the, uh, the delicacy of what we talk about, but been a tremendous advocate. Thank you, Gary. In the back, right there with the glasses, no, in the very back, right there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, Daniel Wrenchers from Feature Story News, uh, and I agree with everything you say about the media at the moment. They, they need to step up as much as everybody else. Uh, my question is this. Some people will look at uh, the possibility of giving donations, be they governments, be they individuals, be they faith groups, and they might say to themselves, well, what, what you guys are saying is there are these conflicts. And there's no guarantee that that funding will get through. So what's the point in doing it? Why, why not give money where we know it will be effective? How do you answer that? Mm -hmm. Great. Thank why you. Why don't we go ahead and answer that? Either one of you want to start? Well, explain that. I missed the question, really. He, I heard it, but I, I don't think I, I understood it. Repeat it, so, repeat it succinctly one more time. So, uh, so for individuals, uh, for governments, for faith groups, and all those looking at this famine and trying to understand what's going on, they might say to themselves, what's the point in providing funding at this point to these insecure areas where there is this conflict, where alternatively I could decide to put my money elsewhere where I know that money is going to go to the right place. So how would you urge them to continue or step up their commitments going forward? Thank you. Yeah, uh, if, I, if I get it right, but the thing that I can tell you with great clarity and conviction is that the monies that we receive, whether it's in the four famine areas or not, goes to the people that need the food because we have monitors on the ground in each of these locations. Now in each area we can is, is strategically allocated to depend upon the security and the access in these areas, you know, from warehousing to airdrops to airlifts to trucking, whatever the case may be. But we can assure uh, literally I mean there's no guarantees of everything because you know sometimes we'll have a truck out in the middle of nowhere and, and a terrorist group or some rebel group will you know, put the, put the gun to the guy's head and he lose the truckload. That's, the, that's a very serious exception to the rule. Uh, but by and large, the food, and I say by and large, literally, I don't know if it's 99.9%, .9%, but whatever that percentage is, it gets to where it is supposed to go. Uh, it, it does. And, and, the, and the difficult thing, and this is, is we talk with our folks in, in the non-four-famine areas. You know, right now we're given special attention to these four famine areas because the plight is so, is so near. But there, there are 76 other countries out there in our network that are suffering uh, from malnutrition as well. Maybe not quite as severe, but uh, so we're trying to bring a special attention here so we can get increased funding so we don't have to pull the funding out of these other areas where there's not conflict-ridden. And uh, that's a whole other discussion for, uh, as well. But, uh, I don't know if that answers it, but yeah. Go ahead. Of course. Just just to add, we we don't have the the option to quit. 
We don't have that option. So this idea that we, we are not fund, fund here because that this is more effective to fund there, this is not true. If we leave them alone, they'll die. There's no option. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let's do a Marshall up here in the front, the man with the red tie, and then we'll move over to Franklin over here, right up at the front. Go ahead and bring it up. The so man with the wooden red questions. shoe. Any questions from this section? <laughs> nope. Okay. Go right ahead, Marshall. Uh, Marshall Matz with the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa today. Um, Kudos to all of you, really, uh, for bringing it together and for the, both agencies to be here together. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's different than the past, and it's wonderful to see you working so cooperatively together and traveling the world together, because it's two sides of the same problem, two sides of the coin. Beyond the four countries that you're focusing on, the, the, the structural problem in food security is really based in Africa still. And, and the solution is in Africa because that's where the underutilized land is and that's where the unused land is throughout the world on agriculture. Um, how do we boost production in Africa? What, what do we, I guess this is, David, maybe this is aimed more at uh, FAO. Uh, what's the plan for doubling, tripling, quadrupling production in Africa? Um, it's doable, the yields are so low, um, it, it wouldn't be dramatic. Um, What's the plan? How do, how do we do that? I'm sure you're coordinating with AGRA, with African Union, uh, so that 10 years from now, we're not here facing the same damn question. Excuse me. Thank you. Thank you. Franklin? I sound like Beasley. Sound like a, <laughs> sound like a Republican there. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm Dole's working on that. Thank you, Marshall. <coughs> Thank you, Kimberly. I'm Franklin Moore with AfriCare. Um, two questions. One will build on what was just said, um, and the other one um, builds on Kimberly's earlier questions and the concept of food as a weapon. Now, I would be the first to guarantee that it is not your role to look at the politics of it. But the reality is, particularly if we look at South Sudan, that there are probably aspects of food insecurity that could be tackled if their partners in the region, all of them are members of EGAT, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development. Some EGAT members are in support of the government. Some EGAT members are in support of the rebels. But there are those of us out there that believe if EGAT were to put pressure on South Sudan as it relates to food security, not the politics, but the food security, they could be successful. So my question is, how do you make available information to those who are dealing with the politics of the area? So that's my first question. The one that builds on his is, could you say a little something about the role of markets as you look at solutions, particularly in four famines? because I would agree very much. Syria produces 30% of their food and it actually goes to markets and is moved around the country. And we know that in many of these cases where um, there are emergency situations, markets tend to be working well. So my question is to what degree are, are you making use of markets and even beyond purchase for, for progress? 
Wonderful. We'll take one more question. Franklin, you can just hand it to the man behind you in the purple tie. Thanks very much. Uh, Keith Martin, Executive Director for the Consortium of Universities for Global Health. Mm. I think we all dearly hope that you are successful in your effort. But as we mentioned, politics has caused this problem. This will not be solved unless you deal with the politics underlying it, right? And all of us who've been involved in famines for a very, very long time, including your predecessor, Jim Morris, a long time ago, a, fi a fabulous person, um, know that we will be in this room next year and the year after that talking about the same thing. So my question is, every person on the list that you have here that's ruling those countries are thugs. They've absconded with million, billions of dollars from their own countries. Could you share with us what's being done in terms of an integrated response to deal with using financial levers on the leaders of these countries, working with the IMF, working with the uh, World Bank, working with the Secretary of the UN and the Security Council to apply the economic levers of to the likes of Kerr and Mashar to uh, Mugabe and others who have absconded with billions of dollars from their own country while their country uh, starves to death. The money is there but levers can be applied to them to try to bring them together, treat the governance that is vital to deal with the underlying reasons for the issues that underpin these famines. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go ahead and respond. Graziana, why don't you start? There were some, thank you for bringing up agriculture and markets and, yeah. okay. <laughs> and uh, production, well, my, uh, my love. Go I'll ahead. <laughs> try to, uh, let me say, uh, the, the, the main problem today, even in Africa, is not about increasing production. It's access to the production and reduce food uh, loss, particularly in Africa. Uh, we have enough food available. We need a better distribution. We need a better storage. We need better way of preserving the food. Uh, during the 60s, 70s, Thanks to the Green Revolution, we made a huge progress. We increased per capita food availability more than 50%. And we still have 800 million people hungry. We waste one third of the food we have. So I know that it appears simple to say that we have hunger, <coughs> we need more food. That's not exactly the solution. So uh, I could elaborate a bit more if I have time, but uh, I respect, I do respect, all the work that we are doing in following up the Green Revolution to increase productivity. But I can say that those countries, this is not the main problem now. Uh, the second was about the political pressure, and you mentioned IGAD, that's a good example. IGAD really has a political power because it's a regional organization that uh, has the countries represented there from the region. They can put the pressure, and they are. They are doing that. But they are divided also. As you mentioned, half of them support one side, half support the other. So I hope that they can get uh, uh, together someday. We are putting a lot of pressure, because we work with IGAD on the countries in that. And from FAO side, we are putting a lot of pressure on that uh, to end this conflict. <clears throat> you mentioned also the issue of markets. Markets is vital. Even the war does not destroy the markets. 
markets are there. And we realize that in Somalia, when the, when the things get worse in Somalia, people die in 150, when we declare famine late. And uh, what to do? There was no food available. There's no way to bring the food in. So we give the, the people money. And money makes the miracle. Because the next day, there was someone there with a camel sending a package of uh, grain and then another selling a goat, etc. We get in a situation in South Sudan. You remember the island? Uh, there is a flooding region there. It's the only region where the army cannot uh, get in. So the, 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 the people flee to those islands. Uh, we are talking island, but it's this size. And there were about double people that are here uh, in this island. And in the center of the island, below the palm tree that's typical in this area, was a market. <laughs> there was a market there. They are selling and buying. So using this technique, we have been able to pull Somalia out of famine in six months. We are doing that, applying many other countries now. So uh, it's much more easy, less costly, to, and uh, uh, also stimulate local production. The key issue for me is the local production. What we need to stimulate, <coughs> not production in general, is local production. Find a way to stimulate those the small farmers that are there that need to survive producing. This is the key for me. And uh, finally, is, you mentioned about the money. In fact, the money is there, or not exactly there. Sometimes in the Swiss bank account, hmm? and not exactly with the people that are suffering. So there is a lot of money, no doubt. But as the food, those people that need don't have access to it. <clears throat> yeah, um, and Marshall's question, uh, I mean, is a very valid question. And, and it's one of the things that we've been asking is, particularly in a non-emergency area, you know, you don't have a, a tsunami or earthquake or a flood or, or it's not a conflict. But if you've been in a country so long, you've been putting how many dollars into that country for 30 years and what do you have to show for it? That gets back to the question of sustainability. One of the things that... Uh, FAO and the World Food Program are working together on is how do we reevaluate the paradigm? And so in some of these countries, as in the World Food Program, we're developing country strategic plans. And uh, to me, as I've said on, on several occasions, until you bring the private sector, it's like if you're making pancakes or something and you cook it, you've got these ingredients and it never rises. So what, what was the ingredient that you were missing? You can rearrange the present ingredients you have, but it never rises because you don't have the baking powder or, or whatever you call it, right? Uh, to me, the private sector is sort of like the baking powder. Uh, we've got all these NGOs out there and government working so hard, and they, their hearts are in it, but you've got to integrate the local private sector. I'm not talking about just big private sector. I'm talking about little, little private sector, too. 
And that's, I think, it's a spark that's needed in these countries. We've got to reevaluate how we've been doing things so that we get sustainability. And so there's skin in the game so that a little farmer or a little merchant, you know, sees what we're talking about when his life is invested into a return on that investment as we're working to create that resilience and that sustainability. Graziana and I've talked many times about the fishing and there's so many different techniques that are being developed today. Let me touch on the market, because uh, like in Syria, we were talking about Syria just a second ago. <clears throat> in Lebanon alone, there's a million some odd refugees into Lebanon. Now, the World Food Program, we're feeding about 770,000, give or take, in Lebanon alone. You can imagine, Lebanon's a small country, a very small country, very limited resources, just like uh, Jordan is, with the refugees uh, or their guests that they have. <clears throat> but you can imagine, if you've got like a small state like Vermont or South Carolina, and you had a million people come in, and you already have limited funds for your schools and for your children, and boom, you got another million people in. Imagine the problem. And so bringing in commodities is not going to help. It might help those who need the food in terms of the refugees, but it doesn't help the local economy. So we try to be strategic. And so what we've done in, in Lebanon, for example, versus Syria, where we're bringing in commodities in Lebanon, uh, our team's working together. We now have 490 stores, little stores owned by Lebanese businessmen and women. 490 of the products they sell, 30% of it is grown locally, 30% of it is packaged or processed locally, and another third is out of the country. So we've put in U.S., Germany, and other donors about $750 million just in the last few years that's helped sustain an economy that is on the brink of failure. And if that economy were to collapse, I'm not even going to get into the Middle East complications as a result of what we're talking about. So we try, in every country we, we go into, we need the modality, the flexibility that's as much as we possibly can to determine how do we feed the people and how do we do it in such a way that helps sustain the economy and not be a burden upon the people there. <clears throat> so, and we've got stories like that in, all over the world. The, the last thing... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into that issue because I get pretty fiery about that. Uh, and I'm, I, we make the phone calls and call our friends and say, particularly our friends, when you look at each country where there's conflict, there's usually three or four major players that yield some degree of influence. And so I think it's become incumbent upon us to notify our friends and have a frank conversation with them uh, for a lot of different ways and sometimes divulge as much information as, as necessary but so that, that we can hopefully provide pressure on <clears throat> in these areas to resolve the conflict, whether you're talking about Syria or Yemen or South Sudan or, or wherever the case may be. Excellent. We're going to take one more round of questions. Let's do the man with the glasses right here on the corner. Just, <clears throat> Hello, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Frank Vogel. I'm a co-founder of a group called Transparency International. Um, and I'd like to follow partly, and just a comment from the last questioner. 
Neither of you in your opening remarks mentioned corruption at all. And yet, if you look, if you look at the data, the country, these four countries come almost at the bottom of our Transparency International Corruption Index, and they also appear as the most violent countries in the world on another index. And if you don't, if you don't recognize, and your remarks did not recognize this, that extreme corruption and extreme violence go hand in hand and are the major problem behind this man-made crisis that you talked about. And if you don't speak publicly about that, then I think you will find that you'll be in the same situation, and this is my question, that I was in many years ago when acting as the Vice President for External Relations for the World Bank, I sat on so many podiums trying to tell people about the crisis in Ethiopia in the 80s, and I failed, and the crisis got worse, and many of us failed, uh, until fortunately, <coughs> brilliant cameraman from Kenya and a TV team reached the BBC, reached NBC, and there was a groundswell of public support, and Bob Geldof and others came along, and suddenly the world was alert to the crisis, and Helen Gale mentioned earlier the need to get the word out, and I would urge you and ask you, what are you doing to reach beyond these very nice, comfortable surroundings here, to take the TV cameras to the South Sudan with you, to go out and become the public advocates? Because if you don't get public support, then nothing will change. And if you don't talk candidly, without all the UN jargon, about extreme corruption and extreme violence, you also won't make a dent. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. There's a question right over here on the corner, and then we'll go to Janet and then Reed. Go ahead. I'm Jim Gilmore. I'm Jim Gilmore, the former governor of Virginia. We, uh, a question was asked about markets and about finance. Uh, David, I was struck by your powerful statement about man-made conflict. Is there a role for force? Do you have any interaction with the Security Council of the United Nations or with any of the uh, African Union organizations for the purpose of the application of troops force in order to create a more quiescent situation so that you can effectively work. Great, thank you so much. Right over here, Janet, and then we'll go to Reed and then we have to be done. Go ahead, Janet. Thanks very much. My name is Janet Fleischman with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Uh, another area that you didn't address yet is the gender dimension of these crises, both in terms of women farmers, who in, by some estimates make up three quarters of the farmers in Africa, as well as the impact of getting food to women in the households in order to feed those families. So it's actually uh, a critical element, both of the famines and of the broader issue of food insecurity. So I wonder if you could address that issue. Thank you. Excellent, thanks. We'll go to Reed here, Jillian. Uh, thank you, Reed Hamill, also with CSIS. Um, you mentioned, uh, Director Beasley, that there are a number of key players in every uh, conflict that can play a critical, influential role. I think in the case of Yemen, many would say that the United States is one of those key players. Uh, President Trump had a, a very successful um, uh, trip to, to Saudi Arabia by some metrics recently and signed one of the largest arms deals um, in recent history, including uh, the types of uh, precision targeted missiles that are often used in the Yemen context. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from you and also perhaps from the, the colleague from OMB 
uh, your perspective on the ways that we can influence this administration to exert some of that type of pressure uh, with Saudi Arabia uh, to resolve the Yemeni conflict. Thank you. Excellent. Graziano, let's start with you in response, as well any other final comments that you have. Uh, yes, uh, there is corruption. And I think this is one of the biggest problems we have. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not only about corruption, it's about governance, good governance at all. So in most of those, uh, let's say, countries, we don't have a government in the sense that they have governance. So uh, this is the problem. We don't need to go to Africa. We can go here in the Caribbean to Haiti. It's the, main, the same. We have uh, so many NGOs acting there. Uh, recently, there was uh, a study from the funding from UK that showed that 70% of the money don't come to Haiti, in fact. So uh, this is just to give an example. Uh, I think this, the, the problems are very complex. It's not simple. If they were simple, we would solve them. Uh, it's not only to give food or give the farmers the seed to plant, etc. It's much more complex than that. Uh, about the, the information and the Security Council. Mm -hmm. the, this information that we evaluate the countries one by one is provided to the Security Council uh, in a semestral base. Since uh, last year, I, I went to the Security Council to call them attention at the time for the impact of El Nino. We have the capacity nowadays in FAO with the World Meteorological Organization to give uh, in three months to know what is going to happen <coughs> in each country. And we can alert them about the imminence of draw, uh, floods, etc. So we started to provide this information for the members and now we are providing the uh, information about food security uh, level in each country. In, it's not a, a global information for a country. It's, uh, let's say, county by county. So it's very precisely. We know where the people uh, is having problems, where it's going to happen. Uh, gender. Uh, in fact, uh, the most affected are women and children. Those are the most affected. Uh, also because, especially during conflict, the men uh, are, uh, let's say, taken to be part of the militias and then uh, they, the women are left alone and we saw the widow. The, the, it's very difficult for a widow with two, three, four, five children to survive in those uh, environments. Uh, not to talking about all the uh, brutality that they are submitted, but to survive. So this is a really a bi uh, very important dimension that's not even highlighted due to the circumstances, but uh, the most affected are women and children. 
Any comment you want to make on the Saudi Arabia? No. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. I have been twice to Yemen, uh, before the conflict and after. And I know that, uh, as, as I said before, uh, my feeling is that uh, uh, external intervention only aggravates internal disputes. Does not solve. We need to find another way to have a political deal. Yemen is that case. I'm not talking about ISIS. I'm not talking about making deal with terrorists. There we have different factions in fighting. And if we don't achieve a, an agreement between them, the actual president that I know very well, and the rebels will not solve the problem. Okay, thank you. David, response to those questions and or final comments? Well, you know, Jim, who, he and I were governors at the same time frame back in the, in the 90s in Virginia and South Carolina, and we've always enjoyed working together. And, and Jim, as you can imagine, like uh, with what are you talking about, the U.S. National Security Council or the U.N. Security Council, uh, we're all strategically engaged on an as-needed basis, and um, we provide a lot of insight and a lot of information. And uh, both have been extremely helpful in, in many situations uh, because, you know, we've got people on the ground and we're seeing a lot that's happening on a, literally on a daily basis. Not many people have thousands of people on the ground in South Sudan and in Yemen and Syria and places like that. And so uh, uh, in the World Food Program, just like FAO, we're not a U.S. operation. We're a U.N. operation. And... Uh, and we work with all the donor countries and, and the UN. Uh, and by the way, Nikki Haley, um, you know, friend of yours as well, former governor from South Carolina, she's been extremely uh, helpful in several situations. To be able to pick up the phone and, and call Ambassador Haley, when we had the young man that was being held prisoner in this country you're you were talking about in corruption in South Sudan, and, and we speak about these issues quite a bit. Uh, Graciana and I have talked about corruption on many times with, many, with leaders, but uh, we were not getting movement that we thought was necessary in South Sudan, and, and uh, Ambassador Haley, I mean, she just took it to the National Security, I mean, to the U.S. National Security Council, Security Council, and just next thing you know, we, we had uh, Alex, uh, Peter, Peter Alex released. Uh, just a few weeks ago, a young man who most likely would be dead if it were not for that. So we've got tremendous cooperation uh, on an as-needed uh, basis. Um, Any other comments oh, on gender. corruptions, gender, well, or Saudi oh, corruption Arabia. is. I mean, that's we talk about this. I just gave a couple may, of speeches. May I add one yeah, point yes. that you're forgetting. Eve Ulsher, we, uh, particularly WFP, uh, innovated on this cash transfer now we are able to provide uh, transfer to mobile phones. Yeah. And they got the money directly. So this minimizes corruption, because it goes direct from our office yeah. to the beneficiaries. This is, this is very, I mean, we can spend a lot of time talking on just this one issue, because we're dealing with this issue, you know, not theoretically. We're on the ground, and we're having to deal with corruption every single day in some of these countries in different ways. But uh, just like what Graziano's talking about on whether it's a cell phone now, you walk in a store or uh, you use the iris scan or the fingerprints or you got the e-credit card. 
And so like in Lebanon, we can monitor literally almost live with the 490 stores, with the million and a half dollars per day. Uh, when they walk in that store with that credit card, they can only buy so many different types of products. You know, it has to be rice or the grain or the beans or whatever the case may be. So we're monitoring. If we see anything spiking, we can send a team in and find out what's going on. Uh, it's, it's, it's really quite amazing uh, with the technology that's, that's out there now. Using the iris scanner, uh, a team in, in Jordan, we're using that in the, in the refugee camps in Jordan, or the fingerprints that might be in uh, other locations like in Somalia we were just in. Uh, the gender, let me say this because this is huge, and Graziana and I, we, we really firmly believe that probably the most effective humanitarian program out there that's helping gender is, is food. Uh, and when, we, when we're handing out food, uh, when we get it to the women, it gets to the children. I mean, it is, we got some statistics on that. I wish I could remember them on the top of my head. You don't remember what they are, John. There's been some studies that show when you get it to the women and, uh, you know, it, it gets to the families. And McGovern Dole, uh, wow. Talk about an effective program. I mean, you, you could talk about McGovern Dole, like the school feeding program down in Georgia in the United States or South Carolina back, back when, that how it impacted gender and children and families. And then you take that same premise to countries like in Kenya. Uh, last week or week before last, I was in Kenya in Nairobi and uh, went to one of the slums. And, uh, and many of you have ever seen the slums. Well, there's a McGovern uh, Dole school feeding program there. Well. The way we operate the McGovern Dole school feeding programs, whether it's in Nairobi or any other place, is that, because we've had this happen where, particularly in cultures where they oppress or suppress uh, women, and we're like, no, 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 all the girls and all the boys. It's not one or the other. If you don't have the girls, you're not going to get the boys. And so the girls come, the boys come, and you know what happens when girls get an education. And then, of course, when they get to the school, they get fed. And so I was dipping out the big old pot about that big, and it was just great. Pouring it into the little plastic bowl and watching the little boys and little girls, you know, seven years old, eight year old, getting their food. That would be probably their only nourishment for the day. But with that, they got an education. And with that, we know the statistics. Girls marry a lot later, get a better education. Of course, we know the return on the investment and, and the rest of the story. So we're very conscious about this in every single country. And uh, we have these unique conversations. When I, we go to the countries and meet with our teams, how's it going with gender? What are you seeing? You're facing anything that's unusual? Do we need to speak to the leadership? Uh, you know, do we need to speak to our donors? And so it's, it's an impressive uh, array of, I think, success over the past particularly many years in, in the gender uh, issue alone. Uh, and we could go uh, in country by country there, but I, I know we're out of time. And <laughs> we are out of time, unfortunately, but <laughs> thank you so much, both of you, for coming. I, I sincerely appreciate it. It's a great honor to have you um, come to CSIS and especially to elevate something that does not get enough attention, as you mentioned, in the media. Thank you all for coming and for your questions. Let's give them a round of applause.